0: Gamers Anonymous, the podcast of part four gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris, and that is not Anthony. Anthony's out this week, and this is episode 351, Listener Questions. We'd like to thank all our Patreon backers for helping us bring you a brand new episode. All right, everyone, we are back, or in this case, I am back with you to talk about listener questions the revenge (laughs) we really like to do listener questions a lot and it really means a lot to us when you actually reach out to us and let you know you know what's going on in life what games you're thinking about what you're looking to play and all that kind of fun stuff so since anthony's out this week i thought it might be fun to again, answer some more questions that you have. The last episode that we did listener feedback was huge, and we had so many questions that we couldn't actually get to all of them. So I jumped back in, pulled out those questions, and I'm going to bring them to you on this episode. So hopefully this will be a lot of fun for you and me, and hopefully some of these questions were questions that you have asked, and I'm so glad to bring them back to the table. So again, thank you all for joining us, and thank you for sitting down at the table and listening. So typically, again, When Anthony goes on one of his many, many trips, I try to kind of bring you each more and more content because obviously you like content and I love producing content. So overall, a very, very cool relationship. So again, thank you and all our Patreon backers for supporting us as we can bring you this new episode. This episode might sound a little different because actually I'm on location as well And that's making things a little more difficult. I'm trying a brand new mic here. It looks like it's coming in a little low. Hopefully, it sounds great for you. And in fact, that actually rolls me into one of the questions on here from Michelle. And in particular, it's all about how's life going, especially during the pandemic, and has that influence or cause issues or challenges with podcasting? Well, Michelle, great question. Thank you for reaching out. Of course, it causes all the kinds of problems, mostly getting games to the table. But in this case, obviously getting the podcast out to you on the table. So Anthony recently moved from Pittsburgh to Philly. And thankfully, he had a very, I would say, more or less streamless kind of situation, especially considering COVID had kind of like racked and like supercharged the housing retail industry so him and his family spent the last couple of months moving out, and I think they're more or less kind of settled. Anthony's still putting together his game collection on the shelves and setting up his office and such, but I think over the next year or so, you're going to see some expansions on the video as Anthony kind of moves into the basement and sets that up as like a gaming area. For me, I've also moved a couple of times over the last year during the pandemic, and that's been pretty difficult because trying to put do produce a podcast during this time is very challenging and getting games to the table is also very challenging. Uh, Currently, I am recording at a unspecified location. Let's just leave it at that. But I'm using a new computer and a new mic. So bear with me. Hopefully the sound is coming in nice and clear to you. And hopefully we can bring you better and better content as we move forward. Actually, this is a really cool mic. Actually, I like it a lot. But I'm not going to give it any props yet until I actually hear the podcast because I bought this a long time ago. Actually, in fact, when we started the streaming service that we were doing with BGA Live and I was like, dude, I need to get a completely new mic and something that's like hardcore because I've had at least two Yetis, maybe three Yetis. and Actually, I've had three Yetis at this point and strangely enough. I think the first one just failed on its own software wise. And it was like heartbreaking because I treated that thing like a baby. I mean, I had it wrapped up with more layers than a newborn. The second one, I think actually fell off the table at one point and was still completely fine. And then just like, I think a year or two later, it was having separate problems. I don't think it was from the actual fall, surprisingly enough. And the third one I currently have has had its own issues here and there And nonetheless, we're doing the best we can with it. So I have a brand new mic. And this one, again, like I said, it's had a while. It's pretty cool. It's pretty neat. I don't know how it's recording. It was not recording on my Mac. My Mac was not recognizing it. So I wasn't able to bring that to the table. But hopefully this works out well and we can move forward. So Michelle, to answer your question, it's been chaotic. It's been crazy. I've moved several times. And I'm actually not in my final place yet. So I think about a month from now I'll actually be in my place having to get furniture and everything else. And I've been in the housing market as well and that's been chaotic as all get out. So hopefully at some point we're able to, you know, settle down and bring, you know, more content to you. But we've been back up doing a lot more Patreon content, so hopefully you're listening to that. And again, thanks for your question, Michelle. All right, so there you go. That's one one of our questions. Actually, it was supposed to be our last question, but nonetheless, <laughs> let's move on. All right. So, um Jose has a question here. Why does Anthony's game of the year remain the same while yours changes each year? It's a really good question. I'm I'm surprised actually anyone noticed that because we do the podcast obviously, you know, practically a year apart from each other. Anthony's game of the year, I think every year has always been War of the Ring. I don't remember the very first year. I'm not sure when he came across it. So, I mean I've kind of two answers to that. I mean Anthony does obviously love War of the Ring and I'm a super big fan of it too. And if you consider the fact that it has the IP and the lore so closely integrated in the game and thematically plays out, I would, you know, be hard to argue why that wouldn't be anyone's number 1 game as long as you were really interested in lore of the Rings. Now that being said, you get to play alternate versions of this. This is very Rebellion-like, too, which Rebellion came out much later and had a almost identical kind of theme and gaming to it. It has a number of different expansions. It had a super deluxe edition, so War of the Ring, I think it has a second edition. It had a special edition that goes for several thousands of dollars at this point. Uh, if you play Hunt for the Ring, I believe is the, the game from Ares Games, you can actually set up war of the ring at a different starting point based upon how far the hobbits have escaped down the uh the i guess the the trail to mordor so it's a lot of heavy deep ip gaming it is a lot of troops on the map it is a lot of hidden movement it is a very long game i guess for me personally just because of those things especially since it's a two-player game which is generally not my ideal player count i like to play at least a four-player count for it to be like a real game night for me. But War of the Ring, I don't know if it's ever been my number one, but it certainly deserves to be number one for all the great things that it does. So makes sense that it's Anthony's number one. Um, any day of the week, if you ask me, would this or could this be your number one? I would say absolutely. Why mine has changed is primarily because I think gaming has gotten better. I think board gaming has radically, dramatically you know, evolved over the years. And a lot of the games that I play today are just significantly better than the ones in the past. Now I do have my favorites. My list doesn't change radically, I guess in the top 10, but there usually is a number one game that kind of steps up. So like underwater cities, especially with its expansion, really stepped it up this year. Lisboa has been my number one in years past as well. So I've had a lot of great games. and I've been really fortunate to get them to the table. So generally that's why that has changed up for me. All right. So we have another question here from Ian. Who wins most often (laughs) when you face each other? Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So when Anthony and I play each other, it's it's kind of hard to say. I mean, we've had several different iterations of our game playing together. So when we first met, we played at the same game store. And we played a lot of games together, typically in group games. And I think at that time, I think I had the winning record over him. And I think as time has gone on he's at least even up if not surpassed me in certain respects since then he's moved a couple of times and moved away and now i think over the last several years the only time when we do play together is when he's played a game and he's teaching it to me and playing it and or the same you know the same vice versa where i learn a game and been playing it and teach it to him so he's i would say at the very least at my equal, I think the only thing that I probably exceed him on is the online board gaming. Whether it's on Board Game Arena or it's on Steam, I think I have the winning record over him on that. But we haven't played many games where we both come in with the same knowledge level. I think we played Grand Oster Hotel recently. He won that easy. I mean, 15 different mistakes on that game You know, as I went on. But he has played it a lot. We recently played ultimate railroads. We played the Asian track and he beat me on that as well. And again, he plays that a lot. I haven't played that much at all. So I think now that he's in Philly, we'll be playing a lot more games together. So I would say generally we're, we're pretty even across the board. And now that we're in the same general vicinity, I think we'll play a lot more games together, but honestly winning and losing never really matters to us. Um, it's just not a thing that we really care about. We are looking to enjoy the game. I'm actually more concerned that someone likes the game than I am about, you know, who won the game. So, uh, you know, that's just one of the kind of fun things about board game is what you're looking for. I think if you're looking for wins, board gaming is really not for you. Maybe if it's a competitive CCG market, then that's something that you want to kind of invest in because that is a lifestyle game. But when you play board gaming, you usually come in with very little information the first time. And I think that discovery period is the most fun. I mean, I do think you want to win, of course. But nonetheless, I think it's a lot of fun just to get the games to the table. So yeah, that's, that's what I, I think I can remember. Anthony does keep track of a lot more things, so he might have a better idea if he's kept track of those things. So thank you for your question, Ian. All right, so we have another question from Jay here. What is the most surprising thing about the board gaming industry? Wow. Okay. There's a lot of surprising things. I, I guess coming in from a board gamer perspective, I think the thing that really hit me, you know, between being board gaming and obviously doing the podcast is actually how small the board gaming industry really is. I mean, we look at all these games in our local big box stores, but a lot of these companies are like three or four people and that's it it's really not that big of an industry. I mean, we always knew that there were designer games and publishers, but it's very, very much still a mom and pop industry. I mean, outside of Asmodee and maybe CMON, I think the vast majority of these companies are like less than 10 employees. So when you go to a board game convention, other than the couple of volunteers that they may get at their booth, you're meeting the entire company, which is pretty crazy. And of course, Nine times out of 10, you're meeting the designer, which is amazing. Love meeting designers. They're brilliant, brilliant, wonderful people. And if you want to have a great conversation, talk to the designers. Uh, you know, companies are great. Publishers are great. But talk to the designers. The designers, it really is amazing experience. It's a lot, a lot of fun. All right. So next question here from Jen. Uh, Do you or have you ever thrown a game? Wow. Okay. So, yeah, I've, I've actually thrown a lot of games, in fact. You know, it's 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 not the kind of thing that you want to talk about because I, I think that every game you go into, you should go with the intent purpose of winning the game. And if you don't go into that, you know, into the game with that kind of purpose, I think you're kind of ruining the time for other people. That being said, I have played several games where I try what I know is maybe a, a less efficient strategy or a different strategy or, you know, depending on who's at the table, whether it's a child or someone who just needs a win, then it's fine to just not play the optimal strategy for success. Remember, these board games are about having fun at the table together. So having fun is the optimal success. You should never throw in having fun. That being said, don't throw a game just to be a jerk, right? You want to, if you have to like, let somebody win, just let somebody win, you know, be gracious about it, have fun with it you know and and still enjoy your time at the table. Like I said, try different strategies, try different things. It's a good opportunity to get games to the table and absolutely positively you don't want to crush people at the table. I'm sorry. Like there's no fun for anyone at the table when you're that far ahead. Let someone have an opportunity to actually play the whole game out. So I think that's oftentimes one of the most important things that you want to do. Oh, we're getting a call in here. So Let's see what we can else. Let's not take the call until like at least later in the podcast, but we'll go into some of the other things that we have to take care of. So what else do we have here? So uh, we have a question here from Sean. Sean says, how has your experience of the industry changed? Great question, Sean. So we've been podcasting for at least nine years. At this point, we've been board gamers for much, much longer than that. There's a lot of things that have changed in the industry. Obviously, I think the most striking thing was it was such a different industry nine, 10 years ago when a lot of the companies were independent. Now, they're still independent companies, of course, but since Asmoday days come in and a lot of other companies have combined, it is honestly a lot less fun. You know, I, I love the idea of going up to a small mom and pop company or just a single designer and talking to them and having that kind of access. Whether it's as a gamer or as you know a podcaster, when you deal with the larger companies, it's more about you know profits and production than it is about love of the industry. So I think the expansion, the growth of in the industry has been fantastic, and I'm so proud about that. But I think we definitely have lost something. And I think that most people who are not in the industry wouldn't know that. So I don't know. It's, it's gotten bigger, which is better, but it's gotten smaller in kind of a way as far as contact is concerned. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a big change across the board. You know, and I, and I think that's something that um, for better or worse, that's what we're looking at going forward. So, you know, that makes sense. All right. Next question here is from Gwen. What are the changes of having a podcast in the industry? Well, again, I think the, the the biggest challenge has been direct connections to the industry, the podcast community and things like that. The biggest challenge, I know you're not necessarily asking the biggest challenge, but you're asking about the challenges here. But the biggest challenge has been the I I guess the overall opportunity to review games in advance, because now so many games are going on Kickstarter that we're finding that games are not getting out to reviewers. We're not reviewing games as independent reviewers. They're going on Kickstarter. You're getting some uh, previews, but you're not actually getting reviews. And also on some level that kind of like lessens the fun, right? I mean, it's great to have Kickstarter out there promoting games, but there's never a situation where a new game's hitting the industry and there's news out there about that and there's interviews with a designer. So you don't get that kind of like big movie rollout. You just get, it's here, but it's not really here. It'll be here in two years, but here's all the information about it, which is great, but you won't get to play it. Instead of, here's the game, you can play it, spread the word. So I think Kickstarter has really radically changed the podcast industry. I don't think for the better, honestly. I think the number of previews hurts the number of reviews or the lack of reviews. And I think that's been the most detrimental thing to, um, you know, news media and journalism across the board. So I think that's generally the biggest challenge of that. Um, I think the other side of it too, I know this is not part of the questions, but I think the challenge also of the industry is as we diversify and we expand out, um, things are more and more expensive. I mean, the supply chain has been a really big thing. Travel has been a big thing with COVID. So getting out to the conventions and getting product has been a huge challenge. So yeah, no, thanks for the question, Gwen. I I think that's um, a very, very good point uh, across the board. I I don't think that we've seen anything like that. All right. Uh, Chris asked a question here. Why has there been so many reports of sexual harassment in the workplace in the board game industry? Well, Chris, I I, I, I guess now it's it's hard it's, it's a weird situation. I actually work in in the in generally in a kind of an employment HR industry. I work for higher education and career development, so I work with students to help them for jobs and internships and professional development for close to about 20 years now at this point. So I'm very familiar about workplaces and especially harassment in the workplaces. I think now more than ever because of media and, and because people are now feeling supported, strengthened, and allied by the board game community, they are coming out with their stories that were always happening, unfortunately. I think there always has been an element of that harassment, especially sexual harassment in the industry. And I think it's on all of us, especially the men out there, to be good allies, to listen, to hear, and to ask what we can do. I think that's essential. I mean, even as, as a guy, I mean, going into a board gaming store, and we, I think we talked about this many, many years ago, once we did a trip around every store in New Jersey. And sometimes just like, you go into a board game store and it's like, a ton of a ton of dudes in that room and they are not friendly. Like that is their space and they do not want you there. And you can feel the vibe in the room. Even sometimes the owners or the managers of the store are not friendly, right? We keep talking about the friendly local game store. But honestly, I would say nine times out of 10, there is nothing friendly about the board gaming store. Again, you know, and there's a lot of reasons this could take up a whole podcast why board gaming tends to be more towards a it's kind of hard to say because i don't want to generalize too much but it is it does lend itself i guess based upon the designers and where most board games have traditionally come from which is probably you know western europe it traditionally is more of a white male kind of hobby that's changed radically i mean women were always part of that um underserved underrepresented communities were always part of that kind of community from the very beginning and in, honestly, in a large part, just invisible. So I think because in a lot of ways, that vibe and that industry and the patriarchy and you know the un- untold and internal kind of struggle, I think it's left a lot of women in particular who have the desire, the experience and the education to work in the industry at a disadvantage. And it has either intentionally or unintentionally silenced a lot of women in the industry. So now that we're seeing a lot of these stories come out of um, sexual harassment and sexual abuse and, and sexual attacks, I think it's a, it's a good thing that these words are getting out because unfortunately I think on some level these things have always happened. And I think that they do need to come to light and we do need to support them and we do need to listen to them and we do need to get you know, our industry in a better place. So whatever you can do to listen, whatever you can do to ask questions, and whatever you can do to support is always a positive thing. And honestly, it's not just women. It's, it's also men who have been taken advantage of. It's also um, underserved, underrepresented communities. And honestly, it's also class difference, too. I mean, a lot of people want to work in the board game industry, but I can't tell you how many people are, like, very good, honest, great people. And they have, like, stacks. And I mean stacks. Stacks of volunteer you know just sleeping on a you know a hotel or a motel floor and they're using them as workers but honestly you know they should be paid right and and you shouldn't have to sleep on the floor to work for a board game company or volunteer for a board game company we should honor and respect all the volunteers that are at the tables at the booths because it is a long it is a long day and a long hours and we need more respect for for people and there is a um some level of taking advantage of those populations so uh, let's do a better job. Let's bring everyone to the table. All right. Our next question here. Um, do you feel big conventions will continue to be a thing moving forward? Well, that's a good question. I, I think obviously COVID has taken a huge swipe at the big conventions. You know, they big big makers, But obviously, you know, as these issues will continue, as the supply chain becomes a more and more of an issue, those things happen to be a bigger and bigger problem. I think we will see the bigger conventions shrink dramatically. I think we will see either Gen Con uh, or... I don't, I don't want to necessarily Origins because Origins is connected to Gamma, which is the board game industry. But I think we will see one of them kind of eventually slide away. I, I don't think, or just shrink to the point where they're no longer the big thing that they once were. Pax Unplug seems to be more or less here to say uh, it's a very manageable, smaller convention. And I think that they've done the right things that they need to do to keep it in a manageable, sustainable way. But Origins and Gen Con have traditionally been unwieldy at this at their size and at their scope and at their cost. I think we've talked about this over the years, how much a lot of people have to pay to be able to set up those tables and boots at those conventions. And obviously the hotel cost of those different locations is exorbitant, you know, and the travel to there has been, you know, problematic to say the least. So I think that going forward, we'll continue to have some of those issues. And I think that we'll just see a lot more smaller conventions go throughout. And I and I think sadly enough, we are losing a lot of gaming stores. So I, I do think that we will see certainly a lot more small gaming conventions moving forward. But I think generally uh, the bigger gaming conventions, I think we'll always see one bigger gaming convention in the U S because it's so big. I think PAX will always remain more or less. And I think we'll always see Eschenspiel, but maybe we'll see something in, in uh East Asia, you know, another board game you know convention come out in a, non-traditional big born gaming area at least not for the convention circuit so i would love to see that but i think i think a couple years maybe five ten years from now gen con or origins may either not exist in their normal form or not at all so uh, thanks miles That that was a great question so all right so let's go next all right so we have a question here from kenneth let's see what is your favorite podcast that is not board game related? Oh wow that's that's pretty rough. I listen to a lot of podcasts and they kind are different based on mood. So really hard to say I, I guess the one that has traditionally been a kind of a favorite thrown to um, is Mike and Tom eat snacks uh, which is a which is a podcast about a specific stack. And it's basically two comedians kind of talking around the snack and then eventually talking about the snack. They've recently come back after they hit their 100th episode. I think they were gone for like four years. And now the current episodes are full of commercials, which really kind of hurts the podcast because it really does break the flow. So I would highly recommend listening to their episodes one through 100 and then maybe kind of work through their current episodes which they're getting back into form but there's just so many commercials that it definitely breaks the comedic flow i listen to so many other podcasts but i'll leave that for another episode because i think that would take up more than the time that we have but uh yeah no thanks for the question yeah that's definitely a fun podcast all right so our next question here i see from audra what what has you most excited about the board game industry what has you most scared? Oof. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, I, I guess what's excited me most about the board game industry, I mentioned a little bit earlier, is that board games have gotten better, like dramatically better. Like I think we talked about either last week or the week before about Brass. I played it initially and I was like, this is one of the worst looking, playing board games I've ever played. And they've updated. I'm like, this is one of the best board games looking and playing that I've ever played. So I think that you can expect better board games as we go forward i think on on, unfortunately on the same note what has me most scared is when they do bring out these revisions the board games are almost always dramatically more expensive and i mean dramatically i mean like i think i saw ultimate railroads is 120 dollars plus tax and shipping Now, given that you're getting the board game, the core game, and I think two expansions plus, it's not radically bad. But honestly, every board game is coming in at 100 plus. And while I feel like those designers deserve that, if not more, I have found that most new board game people are not willing to invest that much money into a single game. So what we have is a lot of people just, you know, trolling around the low end, low cost of the board game industry, playing the same games and not getting a chance to really get into the genius that is out there with the designers. So that kind of really bothers me a lot because there's so much board gaming out there. And I really, really disappointed about that. I, I really want people to play a Vital Lacerda. Or currently the Stefan Felds have gone, you know, kind of cosmic as far as their cost is concerned. You know, but I don't think we're gonna see that. I think people are gonna stick around at a you know, a $30, $40 range. And while a lot of board gamers, you know, typically have an opportunity to go to a board game night, I don't think they're gonna get into the games, the the really good stuff because of just the cost. So I think the cost is the bigger problem. And especially, and I mentioned this several times. Dear God, please stop. And I'm talking to the publishers out there. Just release your core game. Let us play your core game. Stop. And I understand there's financial considerations here, so I'm not taking that away from you. But Packaging your board game with every expansion in a Kickstarter has stopped me from buying more games than I can't even barely tell you. And honestly, that just breaks my heart because if anyone's an obsessive board gamer, it's me. And the fact that you make things financially unviable is crazy. I mean, I make a real salary. Like, I could buy board games. And I think the Defenders of the Realm, was it the Freedom 5 game or whatever it was? It, it was the Sentinels of the Multiverse version of it. It was like, at first I was backing it at, like, the full rate, which was 220 Then as you continue to raise things, I think it was, like, 350 425 And I was like, I haven't even played the base game. Like, I love Defenders of the Realm. It's one of my favorite games. It's been my favorite game of all time several times. I just can't afford to drop four hundred dollars plus with taxes and shipping on a game I've never played. Um, you know, so that has me scared because I think that we're going to lose, we're going to disconnect the genius of board gaming and designers out there with the genius and the and the wonderment um, of all the listeners out there. So yeah, I, th- I think overall that would be the thing that kind of that kind of pushes me back long term on that. So. Um, hopefully we can, we can work out a way to get more of those great games to the table, but that being said, who knows? All right. Well, Mike has a question here. Uh, do you have music, food, TV phones at the table? I guess it depends on with whom and depends on what game, the longer the game, the more Euro ish it is. I would say no to all of those things. Although at my game table and most game tables, I do allow phones at the table primarily because I think it's an easier fix than having everyone stare intently at the person who's having, you know, some sort of challenges. They're frozen at the game table and everyone's staring daggers at them. So I think phones are okay. Food's never okay. Music can be okay, but it it really is iffy. TV, I don't think is ever okay. Again, depends on the game. You might want to have that in another room. So... Alright, cool. Thanks for the question on that. Yeah, that's that's a that's a board game etiquette question. So I think whoever is hosting that game gets to make that decision. Uh especially if it's at their house. So um that makes a question. All right, so Jack has a question here. What are your current backing on Kickstarter and why? Oh no, <laughs> you're gonna make me pull up my Kickstarter stuff. Oh no, I don't I don't know if I want to do that. <laughs> I don't you know the last couple I had I was again I just talked about this there was a lot of kind of pushback for me just because I couldn't just financially support all the great stuff that was out there and then recently there's been a couple of games and I'm just like you know what let's just do that so currently the games that are active at least so I recently backed Weather Machine by Vitaliserta and Enol Tool. Vitaliserta is one of my favorite game designers if not my favorite Ian Oltu is one of my favorite board game artists, so this was kind of easy. But again, it's a very expensive game. It's $148 with the one little mini add-on to the game. So v is the only person I can think of other than maybe Vladimir Succi, who I would just not even question that. I would throw that money down. But that being said, it's a lot of money. And again, you're not going to get these games until like, a year, two years, three years later. So it's a financial investment. It's not just a game. That's money that's not in your pocket. If you are buying the game and you were playing the game, I think there's a different financial transaction there. I've also backed Clash of Decks Season 2. I got the literally free starter pack for I think it's $2 shipping. I've recently played it on Board Game Arena and it's a little fiddly, right? It's, It's basically a board game knockoff of... I guess, Hearthstone in a lot of respects with a little League of Legends kind of thrown in there. And I like it enough that I'm willing to back it. It's $62 euro with everything. And I mean, I backed everything on that. I think it's one of those games that's it's it's simple enough and it's a game that people know very well because of Hearthstone that I think I'll get it to the table a lot. It's a two-player game, so that's my only kind of major drawback there. I've also backed uh, Hegemony, or hegemony. I think it's hegemony, I think is the correct way to say it. Hegemony. Uh, lead your class to victory. Uh, that's $59 euro. This is a first-time designer, I believe. This is a very long game. It's all about the different classes. Um, it's not ripping on any particular class. It's. I think it's like the upper managerial class, and you have the workers, and all the different classes. You have the state and things like that, and each of them play asymmetrically. And I like that idea. It's dynamic. It's fun. It's concerning that each of them plays so asymmetrically that you might have to play all of them to really understand them. So it comes into a root situation, which is not the best. So I got the early bird. I'm not sure if I'll keep it because I think it's like a three or four hour game. And when it's asymmetrical, that means you have to teach everyone individually. And then someone's doing something that you don't know and they win the game. So... I'll have to circle around back to this. I might talk about this at a future episode. I'm also backing Class Ward, a Jacobin uh, board game. Again, this is another kind of how would you say it? It's just like Hegemony, but this is more you know straight down the line. This is you know a two player game, and it's it's all about how would you say it? The left versus the right. I think is the best way to say it. But it's done enough in a cartoonish. Kind of way that it's a, looks like to be a lot of fun. It's $40. It's currently on Kickstarter um, All of these games that I backed all four of these games. I highly recommend Again, it just matters does it does it fit with your table? Um, the ones i'm still waiting for is don't go in there, which I already mentioned verdant, which I already mentioned on mars alien invasion, which is the expansion for on mars still haven't gotten that yet villagers uh, shifting Seasons, I don't think I've received that yet. Canvas, Reflections, Expansion, Reprint. Marvel United X-Men, still waiting for. And I think I'm also waiting for Darwin's Journey, I believe, unless that's somehow showed up at home. Streets, I think the U.S. has had their uh, ships delayed or something. So we haven't gotten our copies yet. And Stefan Feld City's Collection, I, I backed all four. I don't know if that was a good idea, <laughs> but I backed all four on that. So yeah, we'll, we'll talk more about that later, but uh, yeah, thank you for exposing the massive amounts of money that I put out on board games. Uh, hopefully those suggestions are helpful for you out there. All right. So um, another Michael here asks a question, what is your take on board game media? Um, I love board game media. I'm actually part of board game media, I think it's very diverse, and I think that's the one problem I have with board game media in general is that the diversity is really not talked about. Usually, we're all kind of lumped together in one pool, and I think that's a big problem because I think some of us are journalists out there. Some of us are reviewers. Some of us are previewers. Some of us are content creators. Some of us are influencers, and I think there's another other dozen different dimensions to who we are. Does it mean that we we all do different things? Yes and no, but I think that it should be delineated to some point that when you're listening to a podcast or you're listening to videos or something like that, I think that's important for you to know who you're listening to and what their perspective is on board gaming. In particular, I think the biggest challenge I have with my my contemporaries out there is the fact that most of them now more than ever are doing previews of board games on Kickstarters And either they're giving pull quotes about how much they love the board game or pull quotes are being pulled by the publishers. So they're being paid for a preview, but they're giving a review either intentionally or unintentionally. So technically on some level, they're being paid for a review. I don't think anyone means anything bad about this, but I don't personally feel like you should be paid for a review. I think a review should be something given freely on your own. If you're being paid for a preview, then you should not be giving a review quote. It should be a preview, should be straight up and down, very basic. Like this is the game, this is how it's played. It's on Kickstarter. Check it out. Versus I love this game. This is the best game of all time. This is one of my favorite games. I think this is brilliant. I think that's brilliant. That's a review. And when you go to Kickstarter more times than not, I think Verdant was one of these kind of Kickstarters. I I saw this and I was just kind of really turned off by that in a really strong way. I don't like that idea that it's... And again, the idea also is you're not getting reviews of board games anymore. You're just getting previews, paid previews. So I want independent reviews so I know whether or not to back a board game. I don't get all review copies. I get very few review copies. So if I'm backing like I just talked about my Kickstarters, I haven't played any of those games in advance other than, I guess small deck building game, but that was because I paid for it. But nonetheless, all the other ones, I'm hoping that my, again, the other media people are giving me those kind of like re, re, real deep detail things. All right. Oh, another question that goes directly along with this is from Jackson. Why don't you take paid reviews? Everyone does. It's not a big deal. Um, I appreciate the question, Jackson. Anthony and I have always felt it was a big deal and, uh, and it's never really... I mean, it's just kind of who we are. It's never been a real discussion of whether we should or shouldn't. It's always been one of those things where we've been um, anxious about anything that looks like it's somewhat co-opted, you know, and and I think that's always a challenge from us because we have friends in the industry and I don't mean like friends' friends, but we have like, colleagues, I guess, or people we say hi to and things like that. We're not as closely tied or lineated with a lot of or any of pe- people out there. And I think that shows, I think if you go on Kickstarter, you will rarely ever see us on there because we want to have some level of journalistic distance from, you know, so that we can do proper reviews. And I think that we've been well-respected for it. And despite all the things that happened, I think while we do not get the outreach or um the spotlight as much because we don't have the hottest and new games, because hottest new games usually comes at a cost or a string. You know, or sometimes maybe just media things are so big, like Dice Tower's huge, which we are still part of Dice Tower. Uh Shop and Sit Down are so huge. And so and and I think so many other, you know, the big kind of players they get just games sent to them. So if you're not you don't have that kind of gravitational pull, then it really is a matter of, you know, getting those review copies or paid previews or paid reviews and then you love our content because we have those things up front. But since we don't do paid stuff like that, then uh, we don't really have the the you know, the super hottest. Like we have hot games but not the super hottest. And I think for the board game industry I think there was an article about this that like board games become passe almost in a sense, like six months, like they have six months of shelf time and then they kind of get pulled or pushed to the back. There's so many board games coming out. So typically the problem with the industry is, is that by the time we get a board game to review, whether we purchase it or we get some sort of review copy on it, I would say most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time. That game has been out of the, the public spotlight for six months or longer, or a year that you don't necessarily want to review or interested in a review. So there is a challenge with that. So we're we're always working on that. CGE has been very good. Ruins of Arnak, I think they sent out review copies to a lot of people, and we got to play that game. I wouldn't say in advance, but we got to play the game. I think at least at the same time it came out, and it was a fantastic game. And I think it's done so well because they did so much outreach. So for the publishers out there and the designers out there, for the sake of $30 or $40, $50, whatever it costs you to send the games out, please send them out. We want to review them. We want to get the word out there, you know, good or bad, whatever they may be. I think it's it's the best way to promote your games. I don't think that you want to send review copies six months to a year after the game has already come to market because it has less of a push to it. So, um, yeah, so I guess personally, Anthony and I are very much against that idea. Um, but industry wide, I think that's one of those kind of challenges that we often look at and wonder, like, could we do better on some way? Is there something that we could do to kind of get more board gaming out there? And I, I think generally that's, that's the thing. All right. We have a question from Zach here. Uh, Zach asks, where is Daniel and Drew? (laughs) Yeah, so Anthony and I have been running the podcast from day one, and we've been fortunate enough, blessed enough to have so many of our friends at the table with us. And Daniel and Drew have been probably the most mainstay um, guest host that we've had. I mean, if you look at our earlier promotions, it was the four of us. That's where the four meeples kind of come from. And since then, uh, Drew's moved away. Drew moved up to, I believe it was... I'm not sure if it was New Hampshire or Vermont off the top of my head, several years ago. And he's working up there with his own board game co- collection up there and, and still gaming. He, he games a lot on board game arena, but um, he's working full-time and super busy. Daniel, I think we already talked about this, Daniel moved out to China. He got a job, I think Duke University. He's teaching philosophy and ethics out in China. So uh, between his time period and our time period, 12 hours apart, it's made pretty much impossible to do reviews and and stay in touch. He was our main RPG person. So I think one day Daniel will come back to the US on the East Coast at the very least and we'll have him back on the podcast. Um, We miss Daniel and Drew very much. So um, they're up doing other things and hopefully getting some games to the table. So um, shout out to our colleagues out there and um, all the other great people that have been joined us at the table again, blessed and honored to have them there and so much fun. Uh, so hopefully we'll have more people join us. All right. So we have a next question here from art art asks, what is your favorite part of the podcast that you no longer do? Huh? Okay. There's a lot of things we've been doing podcasts for nine years. So I'm trying to think what was the favorite, I guess, feature, I guess probably be the feature. I guess the, our favorite feature, and one of the that I would love people to go back to the older podcasts and listen to is that we used to do, I think it was like on New Year's Eve or like New Year's resolutions where we used to predict the future of board gaming. And I thought that was one of the things that was a lot of fun. So I got so many things right. It's kind of hilarious. In fact, Drew, him and I kind of argued over I don't know if it was El Grande when that would eventually come out and I predicted with no pr- no previous inside information that it would come out that year and he was like no it's not going to happen and it came out that year and I just it was a lot of fun. So I'm really sorry we st- we still do we don't do that anymore but uh I guess you know if people want to hear that again I I've, I think that's something you know that we could do. Um Ching Lung asked what IP needs board games. All right. So um so what What IP has not had a board game or has board games in a while, uh, this is kind of easy and personal for me. That would be Babylon 5. Babylon 5 is my favorite, uh, and this is really hard to say, my favorite sci-fi series. Uh, it was a great TV show back in the day in the 90s, and it has an epic operatic scale, and it had several spinoffs. It used to have and I'm sure some other people are still playing this out there used to have CCGs and it used to, or still does have some form of like miniatures gaming. But since Warner Brothers kind of like locked that all down, the, the IP went nowhere and it really has so many good storylines and dynamics. You could do so many different games with it. I mean, it would be a perfect TI4 skin at the very least. I would recommend that. I'm going to predict that. I'm going to predict that Babylon 5 will get a TI4 kind of skin. I think that's that's really where it probably best belong. Recently, it was announced that Babylon 5 would be coming back in a reboot, kind of like Battlestar Galactica. So um, personally, that's what I'm saying. I, I think that really deserves it because it is a very well-acted show. It didn't have the Star Trek budget, but it's really a good series. Even if you don't like sci-fi, there's a lot of human drama, philosophical um thought and intrigue and mystery and stuff like that so yeah if you can get through the first season season two three and four are some of the best seasons ever in tv season five definitely has its moments so yeah babylon five all right so we have here a question from I'm trying to look for a name here I'm not seeing. oh antonio antonio asks what's your go-to game without knowing people to the table party euro social deduction Oh, geez. Uh, so working backwards, social deduction would be Citadels. I'm not a big social deduction fan. I've played a ton of them. But Citadels is very easy to play. And I think what I like about social deduction games, especially this one, is that you target characters and not players. I think when you target players, that doesn't work really well. People take that personally. And also, usually in social deduction games where you target players... Uh, you lose people from the table. Social deduction games like Citadels allows you to target characters without hurting the player, so to speak. And it's a lot of fun. It's one of my favorite games still to this day. So that I guess party game would probably be Word Slam or Telestrations if you want something lighter. Uh, Word Slam is great because you can have any number of people on both sides of the table. And it's a two-team kind of game, so a lot of fun there. Telstrations is just telephone, but with, like, wacky little boards. And I guess concept is very good too, because, again, it's just using pictures to place your rates. Eurogame is harder. There's so many gateway euro games. I guess I would pick Kingsburg. Especially the reprint is a lot cleaner, although I like the artwork on the first edition. Kingsburg is great because it's rolling dice, and then choosing on the board where to take resources and then building up your kingdom. And it's a lot of fun. So I think those are generally would be my game game choices as far as that's concerned. Thanks for that question. I mean, I think that's something that changes all the time. And I think that's something that, you know, really, really fits, really fits across the board. All right. I guess this is our last question here. What is the game that burns your brain the most? All right, so that's hard because we do play a lot of crazy Euro games, and they do take endless amounts of time. I think the game that does definitely burn my brain the most and gives gives me analysis paralysis would probably have to be Food Chain Magnet, just because there's so many dynamics that come into play, like it's not just about bit, where do you build or what do you produce or what staff do you have, but you have to calculate the distance between you and the houses that you're delivering to. And also you have to calculate a lot of money, you know, do you want to undersell or oversell or how, you know, so it's got money that you have to calculate. It has distance. You have to calculate. It has staff. You have to calculate. Uh, you have to think ahead as far as the goals are concerned. So there's a lot of moving pieces in the game and I, I think midway through, you have to decide how much more money is coming into the game. That's also a big calculation, too. So there's a lot of calculations in that game. So I think that burns my brain the most, at the very least. All right, everyone. So that's everything for our, I guess, listener episode. Hopefully, these are more questions that are great for you. Hopefully, this was a great episode. And we'll be joining Anthony next week. So until next time, this is Chris. And this was you and thank you for joining me at the table.